Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're off to a great start here on a tough message. Uh, For those of you who are new to fullness or those who regularly attend fullness, which means that covers just about everybody here, um, let me just let you behind the curtain, so to speak, just a little bit. Usually, as I preach through books of the Bible, I try and give us really, really practical applications for God's Word. And I also want to equip you to study God's Word so that when you read that particular book, you can get a better understanding of it, you can delve into it kind of well. I try and avoid um, teaching in the aspect of making it more theological than practical. That's generally what I, I attempt to do. Uh, And I generally try and give uh, action words or action verbs kind of to get us, how does this affect my life? What does this do? How do I leave this place with something that I can actually do in my life where I apply God's word? Now, that's my general approach to teaching God's word on Sunday morning. Uh, This morning, I'm going to vary from that just a little bit because this passage is so rich and so deep and so crucial. As I said, theology, what you believe, doctrine, really you may not think you're doctrinal or think doctrine is a big deal, but doctrine really is how you live your life. For instance, if you say that, really, I don't have to believe in Jesus, I just have to be a good person, then that's your doctrine. That is a, that's what you believe about God. So doctrine does affect the way you live. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 are passages from which many different heresies, heretical teachings, failures in the church have sprung. We're going to look at that. I want to look at one aspect of it that I want to emphasize over and over and over again because it is critical to how we view our relationship with God. And after you leave, you you may not get it all today, but after you leave, I want to encourage you just to let it permeate your being so that as you dwell on this truth, it affects the way you live. So in other words, I may not say to you, here's the takeaway. Here is how it but I, I believe this firmly, that if you really let it seep into you, the truth we're going to talk about today, it'll affect you. It'll affect the way you see yourself. It'll affect the way you see others. It'll affect the way you see your relationship with God. Because as we go through this, I, I think we'll see that we have picked up at times, we can't help it. We're humans. We read God's word. We get different aspects, there were certain things about our relationship with God we pick up that may or may not be true, and they affect the way we see ourselves in relationship to him. If I haven't totally confused you already, um, we got a lot of time left, uh, so I, I think I can get that done before the morning's over. First uh, John chapter 5 in the message says this, And we know that the Son of God came so we could recognize and understand the truth of God. What a gift. And we who are living in the truth itself, in God's Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is both true God and real life. Dear children, be on guard against all clever facsimiles. True life, real love. 
That's what we're looking at. What does it mean to really be in love with God and love each other and walk in this relationship? Now remember, John, as rich and as deep theologically as the book of John and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are, John is more pastoral than he is doctrinal in the sense of uh, like Paul, where Paul kind of lays out step by step. John, more times than not, he, he, I use this illustration about the way my dad preaches, just to let you know. My dad kind of circles a plane for a while. You know, he's just circling the airport, and eventually he lands, we hope. Eventually he lands the plane, and whenever he lands it, it, it's really good. I mean, it's a good truth, but in circling, you get a lot of other great truths that are being affected as well. John is kind of like that. He, he, he wants his readers to get the point that this is what's critical. Love God, love people. Fellowship with God is of critical importance, and it's played out through the way we love one another. How does that happen? Well, we love God through our relationship with Jesus. It's the only way we can love God, have fellowship with him. And when we have fellowship with God, fellowship with him means we do what he tells us to do. We follow his commands. What is the greatest command? Love God, love people. Kind of circles back around again. You get it? Love God, love people. And so everything he's going to say has to do with this truth, this one truth, fellowship with God really matters. So what we saw last week was how do we enter into fellowship with God? Well, we do it by knowing that God has to be the the center We uh, receive through faith in Jesus Christ that we're sinners, God's holy, we're sinners, we receive the blood, then we walk in the light. That was John's, how do we get in? Not only that, it's how we maintain our relationship with God. God is a sinner. We realize that we are always in danger of stumbling and falling, but Christ covers us with his blood Keep walking in the light. Don't give up. Keep pressing forward. So we both enter and maintain our relationship with God in a different way, so to speak, but with the same principles principles in mind. And then we get to chapter 2, and John's going to talk about, as we come up, that there are really different tests, different ways we can see how's our fellowship with God being maintained. And the first thing he talks about is doctrinal. It it matters what you believe. What you believe matters because it affects the way you live. Then there's these moral tests he's going to give us. In other words, there's a life to be lived. You believe the right thing, you start living out your life before him, and it's social, it's relational. There are relationships to be honored. In these two verses that he's going to give us in chapter Two verses 1 and 2, he's going to summarize in an effect what he said and kind of bring it down home. And in these two verses, if you just pull these two verses out, you get all kinds of pitfalls that you can overemphasize in one of these two verses. But John is stating kind of in a summary fashion what he's already stated. So here's what I want to do. I want to read these two verses to you. I want to give you the pitfalls that have been throughout church history over the last 2,000 years, just so you'll know we've addressed them a little bit. You can kind of see, because you'll hear some of these things, and I want to equip you as you go out. And then I want to focus on one word, 
and talk about how this relationship with Christ matters. Okay, you with me? All right, so just relax. We're going to have fun. It's going to be great, and I believe it's going to be meaningful. Here's the verse, and I'm reading from the ESV this morning just because it uses a little different language than the NIV. He says, my little children. By the way, all of 1 John is written to the is written to believers, even though at the end of chapter 1 we're trying to figure out, is, is this for believers or unbelievers? And he's talking about both, really, in that sense. But now he's about to focus on followers of Jesus Christ. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. I bet you've used that word probably 10 times this week, right? Propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me give you three pitfalls real quick to avoid that have been throughout church history and are still rampant within the church today that are just from these two verses, these two verses alone. Number one is the doctrine of perfectionism, which uses the phrase, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It is the idea that John is saying, well, why would he say that I may not sin if I don't have to sin? Well, you don't have to sin, but some people have taken it to the next level to say, you can reach a state of perfection where you don't sin in this life. Anybody there yet? Um, not only am I not there, I haven't met someone who is there, and I've known a lot of godly people uh, in my life. But the idea that you can reach a state of perfection, what John is saying to them is like, hey, Jesus Christ has given you freedom to not sin. In other words, he's trying to say to them, don't, don't intend to sin. Don't be sinning. But then he comes back to them and will say, but when you do sin, Jesus Christ's blood covers your sins. Unfortunately, this has led another, this is another theological term called antinomianism. Big word. I just thought I'd throw some big words out today. But antinomianism means against the law. Against the law. It means basically that I don't have to worry about whether I sin or not. Because, why? Jesus Christ's blood covers all my sins. Therefore, rules don't apply. God's word doesn't apply. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I feel. I can do however I'm born. I can do whatever really makes me happy. I can do whatever because Christ's blood covers my sins. This, the, the word, again, theologically that's used, antinomianism, which means against the law, and it's taken from this one passage, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here's what John, from a pastoral standpoint, is saying. You come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have fellowship with God, walk in the light, don't sin. Don't intend to sin. But you're going to sin, you're going to stumble and fall, and when you do, Jesus Christ's blood covers. You see the different perspective you can take any teaching to an extreme, and it becomes a heresy. The third, the third thing here is universalism. Universalism, which means everybody gets in. Everybody gets to come to the party. And so what they're using as a passage is, the, is again, the same two verses. He's the propitiation, we'll talk about that word in a minute, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Which sounds like, hey, everybody's covered. 
right? Everybody's covered with sins. But John has already made it clear that the only way to get in is by confessing your sins, believing in Jesus Christ, and receiving the forgiveness of sins. That's the only way you get to come into this relationship. Big view of these two verses is what John is saying. You're now in relationship with God. Walk in the light. Don't intend to sin. Don't try to sin. Go God's way, not your way. But you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to stumble and fall. So when you do, Jesus Christ's blood covers. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ's blood is so powerful that it, it could cover not only your sins, but everybody's sins, if only. They would come into relationship with him. But people have taken these verses and gone to all various extremes. Here's the point. Fellowship with God is what God desires. If you're in fellowship with him, then don't give in to sin. Rather, stay diligent. But if you do happen to stumble, don't become hopeless. Don't become disconnected. Christ's sacrifice for sins covers your sins. In the middle of this, he makes the point that I want to focus on. And we could talk about just these three things all day and its effect on us, how we live our life. For instance, you may not know that you're a universalist, but you may be thinking, well, God's, God's going to take care of it all. Christ's sin covers, why should I share Jesus Christ with others? If you really think that, then you're kind of a closet universalist. You think everybody's going to get in, because surely God's rich in mercy. Uh, he, wouldn't put a bad per- he wouldn't put a person who has done a lot of good things, he wouldn't separate from them for all eternity. You see how these thinking, it, it, it affects the way we live. It affects the way we act. It affects us, whether we know it or not. And John is going to come back. He's not near done. He's just kind of transitioning here to give us some practical things that he's going to talk about. Children, sons, fathers, and the faith. What does it mean to grow up in God? And how do we stay in fellowship with him? How do we grow in our disciple-making faith? But in the middle of this, he says, it's really under the The phrase up here, the antinomian one, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an, what's that word? Advocate. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. I want to spend the rest of the morning focusing on this one word, advocate. So, here's here's the truths about an advocate. And this is, people, I know this seems like I may be kind of hammered, but this is really, really important. And it really will affect the way you live out, your, live out your life. Our advocate represents us. That's what an advocate do, does. We have an advocate with the Father. He's going to talk about that more. But an advocate, just to let you know, is someone that you have a relationship with, usually in some official capacity that can represent us. In a sense, it's like a legal proxy, uh, a legal representative. The, the thing we would think about most often is a lawyer. You know, in the lawyer, the legal system, the lawyer represents the person. In other words, he's standing in for the person before the whole justice system. The person who's being accused of a crime or needs some representation may not be able to stand in for themselves because they don't know all the rules. They don't know all the legal stuff. So what they do is they hire a lawyer, someone who represents them. And conceivably, lawyer wins, you win. 
Lawyer loses, you lose. I mean, it goes that way. He's your representation, but he's standing in for you. Another example would be like the President of the United States and the Congress. You, we, really, as a people, we don't have the ability to sign treaties and declare war. We give that representation, we give that ability when we vote for a president and a congress. Now, I know there's a lot of debate going on right now about some stuff here, but really, they're the ones who have the ability to negotiate on our behalf with other nations. They're advocating for us where we can't do it on our own. Probably the biggest biblical example, and this is uh, kind of in an Old Testament kind of way, an advocate, is the whole story of David and Goliath. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath comes out, big dude, says, I represent the Philistines. I'm going to advocate for them. I'm going to fight for the whole army. If you get, you get you a guy who will fight me, he'll represent you, I'll represent them. That's an advocate standing in on behalf of others. That position of advocate is the picture of a champion. Someone who's a champion on behalf of everybody else. And really, Jesus Christ, our intercessor, we're going to see in a minute, he is our champion. He is our advocate. He stands in on behalf of us. Charles Hodge, who was a preacher from the 1800s, wrote a book called The Intercession of Christ, a great book. And he says this about Jesus Christ being our advocate. But he gives a picture of an advocate in this setting. He says, excuse me if I can read it, it is that of a legal, excuse me, puts it like, yeah, it is like that of a legal advocate to a client. The former personates the latter, puts himself in the client's place. It is while it lasts, therefore, the most intimate relation. Now, speaking of Jesus, he appears before God for us. We are lost in him, He, not we, is seen, heard, and regarded. It is not not necessary that the client be personally present. His advocate supplies his place. Christ thus assumes our position. It's a critical position. Christ assumes our position before God. In addition, an advocate is someone who can speak on behalf of you, where you may not be able to. A week ago today, um, one of my professors from college, Mrs. Betty Woodward, passed away. Uh, she was close to 80 uh, when, she, when she died last week. Um, Mrs. Woodward was the wife of the dean of the music school, and she taught at Oklahoma Baptist University where I went to college in, in the music school. Mrs. Woodward was my uh, freshman music theory professor. And at Oklahoma Baptist University, freshman music theory met five days a week at, listen to this, 8 a.m. for all you college students, 8 a.m., five days a week. So in effect, Mrs. Woodward was the very first teacher I ever had in my long post-high school career. Mrs. Woodward was, um, she was, how do I say this? She was uh, rather straight-laced and direct. Uh, When you went to Mrs. Woodward's class, you didn't get a lot of fluff, a lot of hugs, a lot of laughs. You got, we were there on business, business. 
uh, and she didn't tolerate you being late. She didn't tolerate you being unprepared. Uh, it was a weeding out class for a lot of music students. Mrs. Woodward um, was not a cold person, but she just, in class, she was all business. There's this one guy named George McNeil. I hope this tape never gets out. But George was consistently late to 8 a.m. music theory, so Miss Woodward started locking the door. <laughs> Two minutes after 8, lock the door. George is out uh, to try and get in. So George would be coming in, you know, hair everywhere. George was generally a well-put-together, you know, kind of preppy guy back for the day, but 8 a.m. he just showed up however he could trying to get there on time. Uh, when I went to church, I went to First Baptist Church of Shawnee, Oklahoma, and they had this adopted student program. Like, there were so many college students that went to Baptist churches there that First Baptist Church, which is the main church, had this program where you adopted a family in the church. You know what I'm talking about, where a family adopts a college student. Much to my surprise, and really a little bit dismay at the moment, um, the Woodwards adopted me as a student. So I've got the dean of the music school and my freshman music theory teacher, Miss Straitlace, who's my, um, now my adopted family. They would have me into their home for dinner. They would have me over, me and uh, another guy named Miller, who was a roommate of mine, Miller Cunningham. And Miller and I were their adopted family, and I didn't know the Woodwards, and I didn't know any. Mrs. Woodward was the nicest person you could imagine outside of class. I mean, she was incredible. And somehow, in spite of me, she loved me. Uh, in spite of my, myself, and so, but in class, it was like she didn't know who I was. You know, outside of class, very warm, inside of class. I've told this story before, and I'll do an abbreviated version of this story. My senior year in college, uh, my brother and I had had a disagreement. My brother was living with me with another guy named Barry Rock. Now, it's kind of ironic because Barry is now the administrative pastor at First Baptist Church Arlington. My brother's a senior pastor. I'm here. The three of us were living together, and um, my brother and I, a couple of nights before, had had a disagreement where he called me in the middle of the night and asked me to, told me his car wouldn't start. It was like one or two in the morning. He was at a restaurant with uh, a girl, and, um, and I said, well, find somebody to jumpstart you. You know, I'm like, you got a car? Find somebody in the restaurant who can give you a jump so you can go home. Well, he was upset with me because I didn't leave bed at 1 o'clock in the morning to come jumpstart him my, my, myself. That's what he thought brothers did. Not me. <laughs> Once I'm asleep, dude, I'll go on. So like two mornings later, um, some sheriffs show up at our door. And they knock on our door. And I, I know some of you have heard this story before. Many of you haven't, but I'll try and get to the point quick. Some sheriffs show up on our door. They knock on the door. They, my brother answers the door. They said, are you Mr. Brookins? And he goes, well, yes, I am. And they said, well, we have a warrant here for your arrest. And suddenly my brother goes, which Mr. Brookins are you looking for? <laughs> and uh, they said, John Brookins. I've got just the guy for you. He comes out. I'm still asleep, which you see that there is a recurring theme in this story. Uh, I'm still asleep. He comes into my bedroom and says, part, 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 wake up quick. I, and I'm like, What? He goes, there's a sheriff here with a warrant for your arrest. Now, I'm thinking two nights before, he is still hacked off at me. And this is some joke that he's trying to pull on me to get out of bed early in the morning to come to the door. And I said, oh, yeah, right, there's sheriffs here. And I, then I hear this panic in his voice. Bart, I am not kidding. 
guns, everything. They're at the... So I get up, I go to the door. They say, are you Mr. Brookins? Yes, I'm Mr. Brookins. We have a warrant here for your arrest. And I'm like, for what? I mean, really, I'm like the most straight-laced guy I know. I mean, I I can't think of anything possibly I've done wrong. And um, here's what he said. Failure to report for jury duty. I'm like, they can arrest you for that? He says, yes, and you have been. And, you know, it's like 7.15 in the morning. I mean, it's early. And he says, you can either go with us right now. And I can't remember what I was wearing. It was not appropriate to go to the courthouse, whatever it was. And he said, or you can be down at the courthouse at 8, and I suggest you don't be late. So I said, I'll be there at 8. I'll be there at 8. So the long and short of the story is that they were doing a double murder trial in Shawnee at the time. It was a big deal. They had called jurors in, and they'd almost run out of jurors. They almost had to declare a mistrial. The judge was really mad, really mad. So he issued a blanket warrant for everybody who didn't show up for jury duty. Well, fortunately, my jury duty notice had been sent to the college, not to the apartment I was living in. Here's the point of the story. When word got out, which it quickly did, that Bart had been arrested uh, in our college, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a small school, not really all that much happens. uh, But when the word got out that I'd been arrested, it got back to Mrs. Woodward. Mrs. Woodward found out who the presiding judge was. She called him, because she knew him, to advocate on my behalf. She called him to talk to him to say, he w- this is not the kind of kid who would do this. So when I came before the judge and said, hey, I, I didn't get notice, he actually said to me, Betty has already called me. I mean, she was known. Mrs. Woodward was a presence. She was a force. Betty has already called me. Things are fine. Don't let this happen again. I'm like, yes, yes, sir. The point is this. We need advocates in our life. Amen? We need advocates on this earth. But most importantly, we need an advocate who will represent us before a holy, righteous God. Our advocate is not just some advocate. Our advocate is perfect. Perfect. Listen to what John says in chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does, does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. Listen to this phrase. Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. The question some may have is, what is Jesus doing there in front of the Father? What is Jesus doing there in front of the Father? Now, I think for some of this, just picture with me, I don't really know how this transaction takes place exactly. But for some of us, I think we are, we're thinking that Jesus is asking for mercy. Kind of like this. You know that Bart? Well, he messed up again. But I'm, Father, I'm asking you, I'm asking you for mercy. Don't wipe him out. Don't kill him. For my sake, just give him one more, just give him one more chance. Or that he's trying to be persuasive by appealing to the love of the Father. But but listen, John doesn't say Jesus Christ the merciful, or Jesus Christ the persuasive, or even Jesus Christ the loving one. 
He says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, why does that matter for me? John goes on to say, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is just a very big word that means that Christ atones for our sins. Christ atones for our sins. God hates sin so much that his wrath, his holy righteous anger is turned towards sin. Now, I, I know many of us, we don't like the view of an angry God. We don't like this idea that God is, hates sin so much that his wrath is turned against us. It makes it sound so kind of emotional. But God can't tolerate sin. So therefore, Christ came and atoned for our sins. I'm going to try not to go on too long with this, but this is really critical, I think. For many people, we stumble over this truth. Adam sins. Why didn't God just forgive him? I know you messed up. I know you messed up. Sorry, you know, I, I forgive you. Isn't that what you do when your children mess up? I mean, you may discipline them for a moment, but then you forgive them. You messed up, I forgive you, go on. Let's try not to let it happen again. I mean, why did God kick Adam out of the Garden of Eden? Why did God have to send Jesus to die? Why did all of that happen? Because God is, remember we saw this in the first of John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God's light, his purity, his holiness, is try, it, it, it doesn't try, it's bigger than any other really quality, I believe. Everything, his love, his mercy, everything else flows out of light. John's already answered all this question, but... Look at the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1 through 3. Romans 1 through 3. And here's a summary of Romans 1 through 3. No matter what you do, Paul says, you cannot make yourself right in God's sight. In other words, sin was so bad in Adam. We're birthed into it. We've done it. Sin is so bad, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right in God's sight. Because... Everything we do and everything we touch is corrupted. Therefore, all of our deeds are filthy in God's sight. Everything we do, every good deed we think we can do is really filthy in God's sight. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We're all sinners by nature. And the wages, what we deserve for sin is what? Is death. What we all deserve is death. This is justice. This is what we deserve. In justice, where God stands in this point, and there are different pictures of God, but in this justice alone, there is no mercy. There's just justice. This past week, my wife served on jury duty. She seems to get called, like, all the time. And, you know, she just walks into a courtroom, and there's something about her. They just put her on a jury. I mean, there's something about her look or something. She always tries to figure out what question to answer that will make it where she won't have to serve. And no matter what she said, she ends up on a jury. So sure enough, this week, she ends up on a jury again, and 
two people, both say the light was green, ran a red light, hit each other. Obviously, the light can't be green on both sides the way it was, the, the traffic was. My wife, because she's in a justice situation, she had to follow the rules of justice. I mean, really, she, her heart went out to one of the clients. I mean, really, she didn't know whether, she, it's impossible to tell who's telling the truth. She had a feeling about who's telling the truth, but because there was no evidence, she had to rule in a neutral position, which means that the, the plaintiff, the person bringing the suit, lost. But her heart went out to him. And she's actually been saying to me, can we send this person money? I just, I want to, I had to rule this way. For days she's been bothered by the fact, she couldn't even sleep the first night when she get, got home because her heart went out to this person, but she couldn't. Justice. Have you ever been in a courtroom? It is, I mean, it is. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. Thanks, guys, for your testimony. Uh, uh, Shannon's like, yeah, I've been there. So, I mean, I've had opportunity to be there myself, and, and, and it is like mercy, mercy has no place in this setting. But then we say, well, wasn't God merciful? Yes, God was rich in grace and mercy. What did he do in order for this to be accomplished, for his justice to be satisfied? He sent Jesus. That was the act of mercy. He sent Christ from heaven to earth to live a perfect, sinless life, to die in our place on the cross so that all of our sins could be atoned for, could be paid for. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul reaches this climax where he says, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it on your own because you're works are as filthy rags. So God sent Jesus for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he talks about righteousness that we've been bought back. That's a term redeemed. This is all in Romans 3, 23, 21 through 23. We were redeemed. We were bought back. Our sins were atoned for, propitiation. The anger of God's wrath was turned away. Its justice was satisfied. And then there's another biblical term called expiation, which basically means our sins not only are, were bought back, our sins are paid for, are atoned for, God's wrath is turned away, but our sins are actually removed from us in God's sight. Jesus did all of this for us. So when Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father as our advocate, as our advocate, he is there in a legal capacity, so to speak. Think about that. This will change your life if you really get a hold of this. I mess up. He says, Father, yes, Bart messed up. Again. But I died where he should have died. I paid the price for this sin. I am his advocate. He is lost in me. Father, it would be unjust to require another payment when a payment has already been paid. 
Therefore, Father, I don't stand on mercy. I stand on justice because the price has already been paid. Mercy triumphed over justice, but how? Because Jesus went and died in our place. Now justice prevails. Justice prevails. He is our advocate. He is our champion. Now, this final point, I'm going to kind of breeze through, but this should change the way we live. This should change the way we live. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. If this is true, then it should change the way we live. We no longer stand guilty before God. God God hasn't just given you forgiveness. God didn't look down and say, John Kerry, you're such a good-looking dude. I'm going to just give you forgiveness. Instead, Christ came and died on our behalf so that when God now sees John, he doesn't see John through the lens of John's failures, but through the justice that has already been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Therefore, when I stand before God, I stand totally forgiven, totally blessed, totally received, totally loved. Why? That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. Another legal term. You don't stand condemned before God. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're like me, your mind already goes to the what ifs. What if? What if I intend to sin? What if I'm like this or I'm like that or I'm like... Listen, the gospel is such good news, it just sounds illogical. I mean, for those of us who are kind of guilt-driven people, I, I, I'm a rule follower, at least the rules I think should be followed, and so I'm a, I'm a rule follower in the, that sense. I know, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, you, you get with me, but um, listen, you start thinking, hey, this person stepped out of the rules, God, go get them. Wipe them out. I mean, that's the way we start to think. Listen, we all stand on equal ground before God, and all of our justice is in Jesus. To me, to me, what the church has done, and I know there's a balance. God, John is going to get to the balance coming right up. He's going to say, listen, how, how you live does matter. How you live does matter. But before God at the moment, none of us ever did anything to get in at God's presence, and none of us can ever do anything to stay in God's presence. Just receive the truth that God's grace is so great that you stand before God in Jesus, your advocate, loved unconditionally because of Jesus. We, we, we're such conditional lovers, so to speak. You know, it, I mean, really, we love somebody until, what? Until they mess up, until something happens, then we don't love them as much anymore. We may lovingly tolerate them, but 
we don't really, our heart doesn't go out. Again, there are so many ramifications to this teaching that if you'll ever really get, just let it permeate your heart. Just let it marinate, so to speak, in you in the coming days. That you have an advocate at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for you, Jesus Christ the righteous. One last story, and then we're going to have communion together because this is the celebration of what Jesus Christ did in order to get you where he is. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he's been preaching. He's brought before the religious leaders who have the power to execute him. He preaches to them. They start saying, okay, why are you doing this? What are you doing? And he just, boom, he launches into one of the greatest sermons. I mean, he's a gifted communicator. Basically, he turns to the people who have the power to kill him and says, you people are wicked sinners. You killed Jesus. The only way to God is through Jesus, and you killed him. You guys are wicked. So they don't receive that very well. And they take him out to stone him. Remember, this is where we first see Paul. Uh, Saul of Tarsus kind of keeping the coats of the people who are going to throw rocks at Stephen and kill him. Stephen is being accused of being a cult leader. He's a liar. He is a traitor. I mean, they're accusing him of everything. And they're picking up rocks to kill him. And God gifts Stephen at that moment with something. He gifts Stephen with a view of heaven. Heaven opens. Stephen looks into heaven, and what does he see? He sees Jesus Christ, his advocate, standing at the right hand of God the Father. Stephen could undergo persecution. Stephen could undergo execution. He could be called all sorts of names. Everything that a person might want to avoid for their entire life, Stephen is about to or has undergone, and yet it says his face shone with glory. His face was on fire. Why? Because he got a view of Jesus Christ, his advocate. Somehow in this, to me, is a principle. If we ever really get a view of Jesus Christ and what he's doing now at the right hand of God the Father as our advocate... It will, everything else will, remember the hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you this morning that you are our advocate, that you stand on our behalf, and that God, we don't stand before you just in asking for mercy, but instead we thank you for your justice that which has been executed through Jesus Christ, our advocate. What a, what a glorious gospel we have. What great good news that Jesus, the one who advocates for us, is also the one who paid the price for us. I pray that right now as we come to a time of communion, a time where we take this cup and this bread 
And we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice that we would receive not only everything you want for us to receive through the accomplishment of forgiveness of sins, the removal of sins, the fact that we've been redeemed, bought back at a price, but I pray that we would also receive the truth of where we are now, whose we are now, and that we stand before you. Through Jesus Christ, our intercessor, our advocate. I pray that right now as we come to this table that we wouldn't take it in a manner unworthy. This was costly. And I pray we would receive it fully. I pray that God, as you meet us here at the table of your presence, that that we would receive the truth, not only that we are yours, but that healing is found in you, freedom is found in you, life is found in you, relationship is found in you. May we come to the table of the Lord this morning and receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to come to the table of the Lord. If I could have the ushers come right now. We're going to take of this as a, as a body. So you're going to come and get the cup and the bread. Take it back to your place. We'll take it and then we'll have a time where we can pray for one another. We'll receive um, communion and then we'll minister to one another and we'll have people praying for each other for as long as we need to uh, as the morning goes along. And I'll give you some more instruction about that in a minute. But first, come and receive the elements. Come and receive the body and blood of Christ. Let's stand. If you're a guest here, you're welcome to join us if you're a follower of Jesus Christ.
On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he broke it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. You may be here this morning, and you don't really know this Christ, this Jesus that I was talking about. 